This is a Mr. Thrive Media production. Wish I had a million dollars. Hot dog! I'm Joel Volk and welcome to Small BizCast, where twice a month I explore the lives of small business owners to dig a bit deeper and expose strengths, weaknesses, ideas, and challenges with blemishes and all. Today's guest is Armine Bazikian, an LA-based estate attorney who started a new business, a passion project really called To Talk Armenian. This business is based on social entrepreneurship, has a great purpose, can be scaled, and most importantly, will help countless numbers of people for several generations. As you listen to this interview, you will find comfort in knowing that you are not alone. Hopefully, you'll learn something while finding inspiration and ideas from the people I introduce you to, like Armine. Hopefully, you'll laugh a little too. Hot dog! It's a wonderful life. During the day, I am an estate planning attorney. I'm a certified specialist in estate planning, probate, and trust administration. I'm also, I'm also a mother. I have a, a seven-year-old um, and a six-year-old, and um, I'm a local to Los Angeles. I'm a local um, LA girl. I grew up here, spent most of my life here, and so this is my home. You were born in Armenia. I was born in Armenia and my parents immigrated to the United States at the cusp of the fall of the Soviet. And so I was about seven years old at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I've spent the majority of my life here. And that region has been in a lot of turmoil since the fall of the Soviet Union, correct? It has been doing relatively well since the Soviet collapse. So they declared their independence following the Soviet collapse and they are relatively a democratic Christian nation. They are in a very dangerous geolocation in the world. They're in the Caucasus surrounded by predominantly countries that do not like Christian nations or have something against them. So they don't have the best of neighbors. I see. And is that why there's such a large diaspora community? Yeah. So so the diaspora community was created in large part as a result of the genocide that took place in the 1915 and previous to that. Mm-hmm. And so that's why you see Armenians everywhere in the world, just like the Jewish population. We're just scattered all throughout, and it's a result of the genocide that took place. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of parallels. I was listening to uh, something that you put out, and you talked about the Birthright Armenia. And there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a program called Birthright Israel, where anybody who has, has you know, Jewish heritage can go to Israel. I think it's 26 and younger. College, basically college age kids up till 26 and, and learn about the culture of Israel. And I assume that's a very similar program. I want to go further and say that Birthright Armenia was born out of Birthright Israel. I, I want to say that that's how the idea came about. It's, it's literally identical. You volunteer, you, you get reintroduced to your nation if you haven't been there. It's, it's a beautiful program. Yeah. Have you done it? Yeah. So that's that's kind of where my love affair for my homeland started, because up until that point, you know, I moved here when I was seven. I had never been back. My parents never took me back. They went back several times, but they had never taken me back. So when I when I re, when I visited the country, I was 21. So it was very different from what I had imagined it all those years. And uh-huh. I did it through birthright, which was I think one of the better ways of reintroducing yourself to a, a homeland because you're there with other children or, or other adults your age. And so you're there with your peers. There's an element of fun involved in the exploration that you're doing. And so it, it leaves behind a very positive um, love 
an infatuation with your country that you take back with you, which is the same thing that happens with Birthright Israel. You, you're there with people your own age. Um, you're doing things that are fun that you would have otherwise done at home, but you're, you're introducing yourself to people from all over the world. So it, it was an amazing experience. Yes, I have a regret that it didn't exist when I was young enough to uh, <laughs> take it. But uh, fortunately, my son did it. Uh, he did it birthright Israel between his freshman and sophomore year of college. And I think it's, you know, he talks about it often. It was a great experience. Yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. Do you speak Armenian? I do. I'm fluent. Did you always speak or did you learn it, have to relearn it? No, I mean, my parents were in their 20s when they moved to the U.S. and that was their dominant language. So they, we spoke it at home. Grandparents spoke it. You know, they were first generation. So it was kind of an, a no-brainer that they were going to pass it along. That was the language we spoke at home. Um, so I'm, I'm fluent. However, with that um, first generation, as is the same with every culture, there was also a need to assimilate and a fear of not learning English. So my parents also forced English upon us very heavily, which prevented me from having the literacy that I would have liked in Armenian. So although I'm completely fluent in spoken Armenian, my literacy is not fluent at all. That's what I'm currently working on is, you know, honing my reading and writing skills. I, Jonathan Boring, have interrupted this program to introduce my own podcast. It's called The Social Spice Podcast. It is a show covering the ever-growing topic of social media marketing and just how a few simple tweaks to your digital outreach can change the entire course of your business. Let's get you cooking with fire. Again, the name of the podcast is The Social Spice Podcast, available on your favorite podcast platform. And remember, we're here to help. It's pretty amazing that your parents were in their 20s when they came there and they had the wisdom to, you know, make sure that you had strong language skills for both English and Armenian. It's interesting. It's, it's really admirable. I can't imagine yeah. the courage it took to do that. Yeah, I mean, they, they learned English alongside of me as I was in school. And so, but Armenian was, you know, my grandparents only spoke Armenian, so we had no choice but to communicate to them in Armenian. Um, and at the time, there wasn't a large um, Armenian community mm -hmm. in Glendale. And so it was kind of, it was easier to learn the language, to learn English and kind of assimilate. So your business is to talk Armenian. My passion project, yes. Although it's a legal business. <laughs> okay, so it's not a business, it's a passion project. So define passion project, if you will, please. So, so passion project, it doesn't feel like work when I'm working on it at all. Um, I can get lost in hours and hours and hours of doing work for that company without even realizing that it's actual physical work that I'm doing. So that's why I don't call it a company. It's, it was born out of a desire to solve an ongoing problem that I saw and simultaneously give back to Armenia, which was always a component within our daily lives, but on a bigger scale. So we always give back, we always donate, we always support. Um, but this was kind of something that had a little bit more of a deeper purpose to it. We had a theory of change model that not only served the country of Armenia, but it was kind of full circle and it served the diaspora and community as well. So please explain, you, you said you, were solved, you solved the problem. What was the problem you were solving? So I'm considered a one and a half generation Armenian American, which means that I came to the U.S. at such a young age that I picked up English very easily. 
And that also means that I have trouble transferring it to my children because my relationship with my husband is completely in English. That's the language that we spoke to in e with each other before we had kids. And I'm not unique by any means. Every, every cultural group experiences this same experience. It's not unique to Armenians. So um, once we had kids, the, the notion was, well, let's try to pass the language on to them. How do we do it? Um, it, it was very easy in the beginning because we had grandparents heavily involved in their early upbringing and they were kind of locked in this little bubble of only being around Armenian people until they were four years old, right? They had non-Armenian friends, but for the most part, their day-to-day -day was in Armenian. So it was very easy to transfer the language to them. They spoke fluently. And then as soon as they went into kindergarten, like one week later, they just lost it. <laughs> They, they switched over so immediately to English, which was great because we always fear that their Armenian is going to hold them back from English. And then, you know, it got to the point where they didn't speak back in Armenian, although they understand fluently. And so the, the problem for us was how do we get them to love the language and speak the language and find it useful to not only communicating, but to doing fun things in the language, to play in Armenian with their friends that are Armenian instead of you know, reverting to English. So mm -hmm. the one and a half generation, us, are kind of the make it or break it generation of whether the language gets transferred or not. If it gets lost with us, it, it's very difficult to regain it back with second and third generation. As I'm sure you've seen you know, you know, with, with different cultures, um, if you have a second or third generation, most of the time they don't speak the language. Yeah, my, my grandparents used to speak uh, Yiddish Mm -hmm. when they didn't want my sister or me to know what they were saying. And so, you know, you could kind of pick up the tone pretty well, but had no idea what they were saying. So it was, it was actually almost kept from us um, <laughs> at some level. And my parents, my mother used to say she understood Yiddish, but couldn't speak Yiddish. So I think that was mm -hmm. generational steps that that, that, that took. Yeah, it's really, it's really the same across the board. I've talked to people that are from Vietnam, they have the same, you know, they do, all, every, everybody does almost the same thing. They send their kids to a Saturday school of some sort or like to church, synagogue or something to learn the language, to right. learn Hebrew or Armenian or Vietnamese or, you know, Mandarin. It just, it doesn't bode well for a child that's within such a heavily dominant English country. And I, I think we have such a privilege living in the U.S. We're so free in the U.S. And we, we see this even more now when we look at all these other countries across the world that are so heavily influential on their people. The dictators and the people that are in power are so controlling of their speech, right? And we're so lucky that we live in America. It's such a freedom to live here. And we don't I don't think we realize that on a day-to-day -day basis that we, we can learn and we can say and we can do whatever we want. So with that, it's very easy to get lost and to lose whatever it is that you had that you brought with you or that you had in your core because there's no one oppressing it. Right. Whereas Armenians, let's say, for example, that were living in Iraq or Iran, they're, you know, everywhere else in the diaspora, they're living in such heavily monitored countries that are restricting their freedom of religion or their freedom of speech when it comes to that language that they fight tooth and nail to keep it alive. Mm -hmm. So, for example, my parents both were born in Iran. And they were repats. They moved back to Armenia when basically the, the revolution happened. But they, they're, both their families for generations had lived in, Arme in Iran. And both families generationally all spoke fluent Armenian and knew how to read and write every single person. And this spans back to like the 17th century. Right. 
So when you look at that, you're like amazed at the fact that these Armenians were able to keep their Armenianness alive for so many centuries. Right. But it's because they were in such, a, they were in a country that didn't want it or didn't allow it or it wasn't acceptable. And so they had to fight for it. Whereas in yeah. the U.S., everything's allowed. So we say, okay, well, I'll worry about that later. I'm allowed to speak it. <laughs> and then you just kind of forget it. Yeah, it's fascinating, the parallels. So to talk Armenian then teaches young people the language. Who are the teachers? So the problem was teaching these young diasporans the language. Um, and the secondary, like, underlying problem was teaching it in a way that they're accepting of. Because as you, I'm sure, as is the case with other cultures, the way that language is taught to a diasporan is not welcoming. So it's like Saturday school or something outside of their regular lifestyle that and makes it an extra it. chore. <laughs> right. yeah, it's kind of like a punishment, right? right? You don't want to go to your Saturday school or whatnot. So we thought, let's do it on a high tech level where the kids actually enjoy it. So um, we, we wrote a program that was play-based and STEM-based. So it doesn't feel like you're learning a language. It feels like you're doing art in a language. It feels like you're doing a science project using that language. We wanted to break the mind of the child and how they actually see language as not only for communication purposes, but for other smart things. So as soon as the, we did a lot of research, as soon as the brain recognizes that you're using that language for something smart, the memory recall is a little bit stronger. Interesting. You're not just, you're not just sitting in class learning the language to communicate with your grandparents. You're learning the language and if, if given a chance, you can explain a science project in that language. Um, so it opens up communication a little bit more. And so we thought, who better to teach these kids than teachers in Armenia? Because right now in the diaspora, we're limited to people that were teachers in Armenia at some point or in their country of origin. Uh -huh. So most of the teachers in the diaspora are either people who moved from Soviet Armenia. So they have very Soviet mentality of teaching, very stern <laughs> methods of transferring that information so it's a very strict classroom setting that the kids here just do not respond to right or they're from from the middle eastern countries which means that again it's a very strict environment so we thought we need to go back and see how they're doing it in armenia and we thought why don't we connect the kids here to teachers in armenia who are in their 20s and 30s mm -hmm. they're they're conversing they're having fun they're kind of, they're relatable they're not like you know their grandmother's age. So the kids actually have fun. So that's where that thought came about. We thought, well, why not give the jobs to people in Armenia? We'll support them. It'll support the economy. With Zoom, everything is possible now, right? With right. virtual learning. Why not? I mean, They're already used to doing their classrooms on Zoom anyway. What are the age groups? What, what, what ages are the kids when they start? So we start at four and we go all the way up to 14, 15. And then mm -hmm. we have elective classes thereafter that are kind of specific to whatever subject they want to learn. Like, you know, you're, or you know you're Armenian when you go to your grandma's house and she feeds you endlessly. And we explore kind of like the cultural background to that, the tradition, why is that such an important um, cultural aspect? Where does it come from? So we have fun classes like that. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because um, I know there's a program here where they have school-age kids work with grandparents, elderly people, and they make bread together. And there's something about this, the, the texture, you know, working with your hands, something tactile, the you know, dough yes. is such a, a tactile thing. And then and they tell, and the older people will tell their stories to the kids um, while they're making the bread. And then, of course, there's this, as the bread's cooking, you know, the odor, the, the aromas and all those sensory memory in, embedding stimuli come, come to play. And I always, I think it's such a warm and wonderful 
way to teach heritage to a younger generation. And also it kind of creates a comfort level because sometimes, you know, kids don't feel that comfortable with older people. And so this, and vice versa, sometimes older people don't know how to relate to kids, but when you're, when you're doing something project-based and especially something like cooking where there's, you know, great, you know, tastes and smells and touch and all these senses together. It's a great, I just think it's a great program. And I could see that being done with the local elderly Armenian women and men with the kids too. Yeah, I love that idea actually. That's, I've never heard of that. That's actually great. It touches on kind of their kinesthetic learning techniques and aural learning and yeah. like the aromas. So that's awesome. I love that. Yeah. And it's a good way to connect people. I think people, people, especially elderly people don't often feel like they have purpose. And so it's a great way to give purpose to, to people and let them connect. What a great program. How many people are enrolled? Oh, I don't see. This is why I say passion project. I have no clue. We have, <laughs> <laughs> we have about seven teachers currently and they each probably have about maybe four to seven students on average that they're working with on a weekly basis. We, we launched in September. So for, for a company that's two months old, um, I think we're, we're trying to keep up at this point. We're trying to hire more teachers, which I didn't expect at all. Um, so I think we're doing really well. And we, we also launched um, a product line simultaneous to what's currently happening to give parents resources that they wouldn't otherwise have. Simple things like flashcards with vocab words. They, they don't exist. Right. So you really come a long way in two months. I didn't realize it was such a new new project. That's fantastic. How long did it take you to develop it before you launched it? It took about a year to develop. We did a pre-launch in August, um, a pre-launch and a beta test group in August. And then we formally launched in September and opened it up to the public. But we had been working on it for about a good nine months prior to that, writing the curriculum mm -hmm. um, and prepping for all the classes. It's just, I, it doesn't feel like two months though. It feels like... Five years. Right. I would say I was I was telling one of the girls yesterday, um, my our director of operations and research analyst. I was like, imagine what I could, I, the amount of you know help I could be if I didn't have to remote school my children. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you realize this takes like three hours of my day on minimum every single day? Which begs um, the question: How do you manage the time difference? I, ha I have no idea how it's all being done. I really, I feel tired. So I'm not, I know I'm not sleeping as much as I used to, but again, I think it goes back to having it. If it's a, if it's something you're passionate about, it doesn't feel, you right. don't feel the same exhaustion that you feel, you know, doing other work. So a lot of nights, I think for the past year, I've worked at least three to four hours every single evening on writing the curriculum and speaking to the teachers there. The good thing is that the time difference makes it really easy to work double time. So I do my law job during the day and then at night it's morning in Armenia. So that's when the teachers wake up and I can kind of go over the curriculum with them and prepare and plan and write and give instructions and delegate. And so for a while there, for a good four months, it felt like I was just working like round the clock. Um, but I, I'm a firm believer that time somehow gets created if you just have passion for whatever it is. Right. Ask a busy person to do something and they'll get done. There's no, yeah. no doubt about it. So. That was really my question was about the, the actual time difference. Let's assume it's Los Angeles. Between Los Angeles and Armenia, what's the time difference? It's exactly about 12 hours with daylight savings switching up. So right now in Armenia, it's about, so it's, you know, so it's literally 12 hours. It's, it's, it's nighttime right now over there. We're, so we're talking in the morning. Right. So what time do the teachers teach 
and what time does, are the students learning? So our students, first of all, we have students on the East Coast, which creates a different so I always, I, I joke and I say like, I went to law school. I know why I went to law school. I know why I was a lawyer. The purpose of being an attorney was to organize the scheduling of classes and timing. <laughs> it's been such a crazy puzzle because we have, we have some kids that are mountain time. We have some kids that are Eastern. We have a student in Dubai now, which just like, wow. I'm just amazed that that's even that was even something that was on our radar. We basically coordinate with the teachers. So for the kids that are in LA, most of the classes that they take on the on the West Coast are from 5 p.m. our time all the way to about the last classes at 7 p.m. So for the teachers in Armenia, that means they're working early morning hours, 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. and on. And I so for a lot of them, it's probably good for them because it doesn't interfere with their normal job. Yes. So for a lot of them, this is kind of their side gig. Right. Um, and it's kind of a, pro it, it really is a passion project for them. Like they've joined our team knowing the purpose of it. Um, so they, they go above and beyond and they wake up early and whatnot. But we also have evening class. We also have early morning classes here, which means that a, a lot of them also work. A lot of them also work like 9 a.m. our time to 11 or midnight. Is it app driven? Are they able to connect the teachers to the students using apps? Is that how you've done it? So we've done it all through Zoom. They share their screen. They have all of the material that the student has in front of them. So the right. student actually gets a curriculum book that they work out of because one of our kind of claim to fame models of our program is that we're trying to touch on every single learning style, like you mentioned. So we want to make sure that if we have a kinesthetic learner, that there's an activity that they're doing in the book. Um, you know, they'll play bingo. They'll, they'll play battleship when they're learning the numbers, for example. Yeah. Um, and so everything is connected via Zoom. They share their screens. They do whatever needs to be done. At some point, I'm, I'm so grateful for the remote learning. I'm trying to look at the positives of having to remote teach my children. But because of the remote learning, I've become acquainted with so many programs that the school districts are using. And so I'm like, that's a great program. It allows you to move things around physically <laughs> as a child on the screen. And it allows the young children to be able to do it. We're going to take a short break and be right back. Over the many years I've worked at Mercury Document Imaging, we've been solving business problems using technology, and now we have this new reality. Employees are working from home, and companies are trying to stay relevant and efficient and have accountability for their employees while doing so. The big problem is that the cyber criminals are working from home too, and they have been doing this longer and know what they're doing and know what vulnerabilities you've created by kind of throwing this together quickly. So now that it looks like we're gonna be here for a while, it's time to think about this. I want you to reach out to my company. We'll either help you or refer you to a partner that can help you, depending on what the vulnerability is. But the first thing to do is start with an assessment, make sure that you're protected, and then find the weak link. So please call us, 818-782-1221. My extension is 25913. But call anybody at the office. We're all happy to help you, and we want to make sure that we don't have any more problems than we already have. Thanks. Welcome back to Small BizCast. We are on with Armin Bazikian of To Talk Armenian. So I think we're going to develop the program way more than what I had envisioned. So I think there's going to be a lot of changes coming. That's so exciting. Have you seen this modeled in other cultures? No, I think when we did our research, we did. So our, our um, director of operations and research analyst joined our team in April. 
And so she joined and went and deep dived into different learning methods. And she went into this cultural hole of, well, why does it, why do we lose the language? What happens? And why do other cultures, why is it across the board the same with every language? And so her research basically proved to us that we're, we're, we can't teach the children how to learn a language in a way that they're not used to. If, if the learning method is different from how they're learning in regular school, their brain can't make the shift and hold on to it. And so we haven't seen this done in other cultures. We're all play-based, which is weird to parents. Mm -hmm. But again, it, the, the desperation for parents, we're so desperate to have the language be maintained that for me, for example, I don't care if my children are perfect linguists in Armenian and know how to read and write. I just right. want them to be able to communicate confidently when they're teenagers with right. an elderly person, right? And so that's why the company's name is to talk Armenian. We want to bring them to the point where they're just talking. Right. But we do teach them how to read and write. We, we take them all the way up to a fifth grade equivalency of a student in Armenia, which based on our research was what most people in Armenia, their speaking style is about a fifth to seventh grade literacy level um, in, the, in the general populace. So I, I would think this has some marketability towards other cultures. So you could probably replicate this for other diasporic communities and use that as a way to build revenue to, to forward this cause, because I assume this is an expensive process thing to put together. Have you, is that part of your business modeling? Yeah. So, so the, the primary goal or game plan is, is going to be, well, so right now our focus is on English speaking countries when it comes to learning Armenian. So right now we're focusing on the U S diaspora, but of mm -hmm. course, as I mentioned, we have, we have kids, we have a child in D Dubai who knows sure. English. Right. And so she's coming on board. Um, and then the, then we'll move on to other, English speaking countries like Australia and, and Great Britain. Once we've exhausted that, the second largest diaspora is in Russia, and it'll be very easy for us to transition our material into Russian Armenian. So allowing the, that diaspora to take advantage of the program. Um, and then beyond that, I think it would be, I want to say franchisable to other countries or other, or other languages. Mm -hmm. um, if, it, if it is successful the way that we envision it to be successful, it should be, a, I mean, it should be something that's modeled in every other language. Yeah. It seems to me that the, the, the goal, of course, is to connect, to connect the past, present, and the future, right? With the same culture and to, to bring it forward. And there's so many communities that have the same challenge. And so it seems brilliant in that respect. What, what does it do to your professional life as a lawyer? Uh, is the goal to continue both careers? Or what is the... I have no idea. That is my goal. I mean, I, I just, you know, studied and took the specialization exams. So it's, right. you know, I'm still thrive, thriving and, and putting goalposts up for myself within my legal career. Right. And you're, um, and you're very well respected. The people I know that know you speak only good things and say what a wonderful attorney you are. And, and obviously you're a passionate person that really dives in great depth and, and, and detail. And so that those qualities that you have, you're bringing to your, to your passion project, but I can imagine at some point you're going to have two, you know, 12 hour day jobs and still want to be a wife and mother. And so how do you balance that? 
Yeah. So that that's kind of been my question mark up in the air. Right now, both of them are going strong. I'm sure at some point they'll bat, battle it out in my brain and one will win over. Uh -huh. um, I'm hoping that at some point both of them can can sustain themselves with very minimal involvement on my part. Um, but really, I, I can't foresee my legal career overpowering a passion project. Right. That's actually very interesting. And I think about that every day. I'm like, what would I do? Would I ever stop working in the legal community? I don't think I would because I love the human aspect of what I do. I don't consider myself like an attorney. I consider myself a problem solver for clients. And I have very strong relationships with every single one of my clients. So I, that, that feeds a different you know, part of me that I don't think I would be able to just sit at home and let go of and not do the legal work not stimulate my mind in that way. Sure, sure. So they both kind of feed different parts of my mind, I guess, mm -hmm. that are mutually sort of symbiotic right now, and I hope it stays that way. So um, in terms of the talk Armenians, what did it take in terms of people power to put it all together? Did you do it all yourself, or did you assemble a board of directors? Did you assemble a support team? Tell me how that started. Yeah, so it started off with just myself and my husband. And then I realized, you know, he's a trial attorney. I, I realized I'm not going to get much help from him. He has a crazy schedule. Um, but, but so then the first person I brought on was our um, then tutor who was living in Armenia. I really liked her. She was very open to my crazy ideas of how to do things. Um, and then I, so I, I offered her a full-time job. And then I learned later on that she has a master's degree in educational modeling. So that, that's why she was open to all of my kooky learning ideas for my kids. So she was the first one that came on and we started writing the curriculum together. And then our client service director, I knew her from a previous life, right? And so um, I, kept, I kept trying to recruit her and she kept rejecting me. And when she finally graduated from UCLA with her master's uh, in social sciences, this, this was kind of the perfect role for her. So she had received her bachelor's from Berkeley, master's from UCLA, um, and when I described the position to her, it was kind of a no-brainer of that's kind of my dream job. And she had also been heavily involved in Armenian volunteer work and whatnot. So I finally was able to convince her to join me. And I think when she joined me, everything just became so much bigger than I had planned. But really, earlier on, it took so many, I, I, always, I always joke, I'm like, it took so many attorneys to make this possible. <laughs> you know, between like the trademark attorney, we had the business attorney here in, in California, we have an attorney in Armenia that dealt with the employment laws there. We had two business attorneys here, one that dealt with the parental side of things, the contracts with the parents, we had another one that dealt with um, you know, circumvention agreements and whatnot here. Then we had the attorney in Armenia that dealt with the employment laws there and trademark and copyright. So it really, it's a huge team at this point of people that are all kind of invested and right. trying to help make it successful. So what advice would you have for somebody else that had full-time career and has this passion, this desire to give back to their roots and their community? How would you what advice would you give now that you're nine months into this project? Because it's really admirable. And I'm sure that I'm sure that people will hear this and think, you know, I got to do what I want to do too. I think, I think the biggest problem is starting in everything. The start, people just don't put that first step forward. And it, don't procrastinate. First step, they, they don't just procrastinate. They don't make that first step. I think once you get that first item off your to-do list, everything just snowballs. I mean, at some point I stopped and I told my husband, like, I can't even turn back even if I wanted to. 
I've invested so much time and money into it that it would be ridiculous. It would be a bad decision to stop. Right. But it really, at some point after the first couple of steps, it becomes its own creature and you can't stop it. So I think the most difficult part for people is not making that first step. Once you make that first step, once you force yourself to making that first step towards your passion project, it just takes over on its own because it's a passion project. Your, your heart is in it. But I think, I think delegation is very important. I think finding the right people to help you just with anything in life, you are, you know, as strong as the people around you. So everything is a team effort. Everything is a group effort. You can't do everything alone. And that means you have to make tough decisions in terms of firing or dismissing the wrong partner. If you make a mistake, you have to do that quickly too, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it would definitely be much easier to have other people, other partners, or if you can employees to help you right, right. Talent I think is key. Most people would have a passion project and not have a lot of you know, resources in terms of money mm -hmm. and, and to put into it. So then you're relying on, then you're relying on so many other elements. Um, so was, how did you fund it? So I funded it, I self-funded it originally. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't, I'm not the type of person that spends on other things. I don't buy fancy cars. I don't buy fancy clothing or purses or whatever else other women do. So I thought, <laughs> this is this is my, I'm going to pay this teacher. A, I'm going to earmark three months of salary for this teacher to help me. And uh -huh. that's going to be, you know, whatever, a very nice pair of shoes or and a purse or whatever that I bought. Right. It's a splurge, but it's a splurge towards something that even if I, I in my mind, I thought even if I, if nothing comes out of this, she received a wage and I still donated it somehow. In my mind, I was like, it's a donation. It's fine. I think you have to put something towards it. And I actually think that if you don't put money towards it, you're not going to be as motivated. Right. So it's about priorities. So you're, you're delaying your own desire for material things to do something bigger and broader that you can. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you 100%. Do you have a succession plan for handing it off to somebody when it becomes, I mean, is there a number two person that you can delegate more and more to? Are you bringing, are you mentoring people? Yeah, I mean, right now our number two person, right now our number two person is our director of operations. She's fully capable of handling everything on her own. Um, but again, I think there's a lot of business decisions that are just reliant on me, right? That are completely dependent on my skill set and my direction. So right now, I'm really enjoying the development and getting together around a table and saying, we should write a book in Armenian because oh, there aren't any children's books, right? We should write a book that's specifically designed for this person. Let's connect this, this, and this other person and see what comes out of it. I'll get an idea, I'll coordinate it, I'll put the right team together, and then I'll be like, can you also take over, by the way? Because <laughs> I have to go into that estate planning meeting, and I can't. But the good thing is that we're all within the same office, so there's just work being done um, and kind of monitoring on my part at this point, which I'm very lucky to have. And I trust her 100%, which is another I think key factor here is that I trust her with this baby of mine. I call it my fourth child. You know, my daughter's my first, my law firm is my second, then it's my son, and this is my fourth child. So I trust her with my baby. Right. Well, you have a lot of, it seems to me, innate management skills. Most lawyers I've met have not, they don't teach you a lot about running a business in law school. And you seem to really understand what it's like to grow a, an organization and to delegate and to have a vision and to execute. And so did that come naturally or did you, were you trained? Did you do an MBA in business or? 
No, I, I don't have any professional training on it. I think when I first, when I launched my law firm, you know, I was earmarked as being, okay, I'm an attorney. Um, this is what I do. And then when I launched my law firm, I really, really enjoyed the business aspect of it so much more than the legal practice. And at some point, <laughs> Um, just business management and coming up with um, systems and ideas and making making things efficient were kind of like my jam. If there was an end, I would say business development and problem solving are, I think, my two key skill sets where, you know, I, I love having meetings with my staff on a weekly basis because if somebody says, you know, I really get frustrated when I schedule signing appointments for clients, they never get back to me. It takes 10 emails. Um, it's, I'm, I'm frustrated by it. I can say, great, you shouldn't be frustrated by it. Why don't we schedule it way ahead of time when we have them captive in our conference room? Then we don't have to go play phone tag with them. So I really like those problem solving um, moments in a business. And so with my firm, it's about seven years old now. I think sometime around last year, I reached a point where there was nothing else to solve. And it was fully fine on its own. Right. And I was like, wow, okay, this isn't, there's no excitement anymore. Right. Cause it's already like a full grown child that's doing great. Right. Um, it kind of had left the nest to equate it to sure. having adult children. So I thought, okay, well, I think that's when my focus started changing to, to talk Armenian. And I was like, well, what about this? I've diverted that business development over to, to talk Armenian. And it's a much more fun company right. to develop because and, there's a lot of creativity in it and the sky's the limit this can keep on going as technology advances and as as you expand geographically and and you know all your services you can it can really take on a huge life of its own exactly so that must be very exactly. exciting from a from a business from a you know the, the founder's perspective that's very exciting yeah it's definitely it's definitely scalable in a different way both there, laterally and and you know um you know, both vertically and horizontally. It's, it's scalable in a completely different way that a law practice can't be. Sure. So that's definitely really, really exciting. But it's just a different type of business. It's, it, it's heavily on relying on marketing. It's, there's a specific demographic and community that we're marketing towards. So it's way more fun to do things that I can't do with the legal practice. So it's, it's been awesome. Let's talk about that. How do you get the word out to your potential students? So, so far, all of our students have come from like word of mouth and social media. So it's, again, going back to comparing a law practice to this, you know, with, with my law practice, it's a lot of me interacting with other human beings that are referring me their clients, right? Sure. Um, whereas with this one, the, it's kind of endless what we could do with marketing. So again, we did an initial beta testing where we offered an early bird beta program to people that wanted to sign up earlier on. And so a lot of our students came from that. And then when we opened it up, we did a lot of social media marketing. We didn't do, it, it wasn't earmarked as marketing. I don't like to call it marketing because I think if you're, if you're posting something or placing information out there with the purpose of gaining a client, it never works. So our, our social media is basically designed to provide and be a resource to parents that are not our clients. So if you look through our Instagram page, we post word of the days. We have Armenian poems that are translated and mm -hmm. transliterated so that illiterate parents, which is a lot of the one and a half generation, sure. that don't know how to read Armenian can read it with the English lettering. I see. And can actually teach their child that poem or that story or whatever it is. 
So what, uh, we, we do a lot of resource on the internet. We provide a lot of resources and people like that. And then they, they learn that we're a language program. So how can a listener find you on Instagram? So it's just our handle is to talk Armenian. And it's the same for Facebook. I think storytelling works well too. So I bet as time goes on, you can tell some great stories about some of your participants, even whether, yes. whether it's the success stories of the teachers or whether it's the success stories of the students. And I'm, I'm guessing that one thing that might happen later on is that some of the students as they get older will want to become teachers and, and mentor other younger kids. So that might be some really exciting places you can go to. That, that'll be very fulfilling when that starts to take place. Yeah, we're hoping, that, we're hoping that the kids that we have now will graduate into our elective classes and keep the ties, and then they'll graduate again into birthright or media. Yeah, nice. And we'll have, and we'll have some sort of connection to wanting to repatriate back to the country or give back in some way. But really, our, our, I talked about our theory of change. Our theory of, you know, we're solving the problem of language, but our big theory of change is connection. At the end of the day, we want the next generation of diasporans to actually feel connected to the country in some visceral way. Um, because a lot of the diaspora, as you know, are third, fourth generation. They don't speak the language. They might visit the country often, right. but they don't really have any human being that's living there. And actually, sadly, one of the one of the images that I had in my mind, like eight months ago, I was like explaining it to someone, and I said, you know, we want to make sure that if something catastrophic happens in Armenia, people all over the world in the diaspora are so connected. They have a teacher there or a pen pal there that they get up and actually move and make actionable to-dos towards that problem. What a great mission. Yeah, so we, we, we earmark a percentage to give back every year, um, depending on what the profits were. But the objective is, is it, although it's a for-profit business, the objective is not to make a profit off of this. So like right now, all of the products that we launched are 100% proceeds going to armeniafund.org. So we have the flashcards, we have um, translated books, we have so much material that's coming out. And the game plan is for all of the products to always fund some humanitarian effort on the grounds. Um, and then obviously our, our secondary goal is to make sure that we up the wages of the teachers at some point so that they're right now they're earning a phenomenal like quadruple what they would have earned with less time investment. But the goal is to get it to the level where they can, you know, not only thrive, but to do something with that to establish a business of their own or something that goes back into the economy. Oh my god, that's brilliant. Um, you're a special person. I can see you're going to do fantastic. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's been it's been really tough with everything that's going on, but it's kind of like it, we had a spark when we were doing this, but it's kind of ignited the spark on it's become like a flame. Yeah. Now with every our, our purpose is even more necessary now. Mm -hmm. That's what we're realizing. Right. Um, and by the way, there are, I'm sure you're aware, but there are so many parallels between the Jewish community. 100%. It's amazing to hear you talk. I feel like, I feel like I'm speaking to uh, somebody in the Jewish community. So. It's, it's almost identical to yeah. the T. Yeah. Um, it's almost identical to the T. Other than obviously the religion, everything, the experiences, the, the uh, pain, the suffering, and then the reignition of that flame is literally right. identical. And, and the strength and of so. community, too really excited by your project. How can people get a hold of you to help you and to offer ideas, resources, students? Um, so we have everything linked on our website to talkarmenian.com. It'll take you to our Instagram page and our Facebook page. Again, that's where we have all of our resources. We also have a LinkedIn page because we're trying to make sure that we're helping professional parents out there that don't have time right. um, to go searching for the resources. 
So that is there anything that you need that you want to ask people for or what can I do to help you? So I think right now the biggest need for my company is a need for it to thrive and survive on a very basic level, right? And so there's obviously an ongoing war. Depending on how that shakes out, there may or may not be an, a country through which our you know, teachers can actually thrive through. You know, it's an existential threat to our existence right now. And so we're, we're fighting to stay alive. I think the need would be for people to voice their concerns in whatever country that they're in and to get their politicians that they voted in office to actually act against the, the human rights violations and the war crimes that are currently happening. That's so powerful. You're doing such great work. Thank you for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And um, I really hope that this benefits you and benefits your cause and benefits people of Armenia. Thank, Thank you for having me, Joel. I really appreciate you taking the time to listen to my story. Social entrepreneurship is very special to me. And I hope that this discussion with Arminate inspired some of you to engineer it into your small businesses. Thank you for sharing and listening to the Small BizCast. We will download automatically on all of your devices by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. We appreciate the feedback and likes on our socials, like Facebook and Instagram, too. If you have business questions or are thinking about sponsoring our show, check out our website at smallbizcast.com. Once again, thank you, and remember, hot dog, it's a wonderful life. Next on Small BizCast, the seven-piece playbook author Jonathan Goldhill of the Goldhill Group joins us. Here's a sneak peek. Coaching, I think, has become super popular. It seems like everyone's become a coach. So I think arguably I wrote the book to start to distinguish myself and to really become a trusted authority and, and be someone in a category of one. And there are family business coaches and consultants and most of those people are working with multi-generational uh, family businesses and those are complicated animals. So I wanted to talk about a different type of disruptor. Small BizCast drops every other Monday. Follow us on our socials for business tidbits and special offers. Thank you again to our sponsor, Mercury Document Imaging. We couldn't do this without you. And of course, thanks to my producer and my son, Charlie Volk of Mr. Thrive Media. Couldn't do without him either. Thank you very much for listening. Hot dog, it's a wonderful life.